Hello from New Life Church, Guyana. This week, Pastor Steve Benninger continues with the sixth sermon of the series, James. You know, um, you've heard it said that uh, a pastor's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think we're going to be doing uh, some of both this morning, so I hope you're ready for that. You can go to James chapter 2 in your Bibles, if you've got a Bible or device with you. That's where we'll be this morning, and you can pull the study guide out of your worship folder as well. And while you're doing that, let me pray for us, okay? Father God, thank you for these moments, Lord, that we get to share together every weekend. And uh, Lord, there's so much good that you do in our lives through it. Lord, as we sit under the teaching of your word now, I pray that uh, the ministry of your Holy Spirit would be active and alive, that the Spirit would be coming and ministering grace and truth to our lives right where we need it. Open our eyes to that which uh, you would want us to see today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Bible very clearly teaches that salvation is received by faith. But there is a kind of faith that will not save anybody. So says Pastor James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus in the section of his letter that we come to today. Listen to the probing question that he opens with, James chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And the implied answer is no, no. That kind of deedless faith will not save that man, despite his claim of being a Christian. Three verses later, James puts an exclamation point on this when he said in verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead faith. Dead faith. And that means for this person, this professing believer... There is no forgiveness of sins, no eternal life, no home reserved in heaven. His so-called faith will not ultimately save him from the judgment of God. Now, we've been learning about James as we've walked through this letter, and we know that James is a pastor, and he's a good pastor. He loves people. And what we see here is that James is concerned that there are people who have convinced themselves, and maybe other people, that they are true believers, But their faith, such as it is, has not actually saved them. And I'm a pastor, and I'm concerned about this too, deeply concerned. Now, we know that when we think about the lost people that we know, the unbelievers that we know, not everybody's at the same place, right? And at the risk of oversimplifying, I want to identify four distinct groups of lost people. See if you know folks in these categories. The first I'll call the seemingly satisfied, the seemingly satisfied. These people aren't saved and they don't really care yet. They aren't that concerned about God right now. If he does exist, they pretty much just want him to leave them alone, not bother them so they can live their lives. They're having a good time and they're thinking, I'm doing just fine without God. The seemingly satisfied. Know anybody like that? Then another group I would call the sincerely seeking folks, and I love being around these kinds of people. Some of you are sincere seekers today. You're not saved yet, and you know it, 
But you're not trying to impress anybody. You're not trying to look spiritual. You're just on a quest. You're on a sincere quest for truth. And maybe you're here today and you, this describes you, you're a sincere seeker. You're here checking out the Bible and Christians and church and Christianity. I want you to know, we're glad you're here. We love that you're here. There's another group we might call the self-deceived. The self-deceived. And people in this group are not saved, but they think they are. They're deceived. They're smug, but without good reason. They're relying on the wrong things to make them right with God. And Jesus said that they're going to experience their worst nightmare if they don't wake up to their deception, the self-deceived. And then there are the the pretenders, the, the spiritually pretending, we could call them. And these people are not saved, and they know it, but they're trying hard to come off as Christians, to look the part. These folks are unwilling to fully surrender their hearts to Jesus Christ, but they like being viewed by other people as religious or as spiritual feed something in them. So they play the game, but they're imposters. They're they're phonies. They look and talk like Christians when it's advantageous to do so, but they're not really changed people. And Jesus talked about this group a lot, didn't he? He knew a bunch of them. Believe me, Jesus knows who the posers are. Now, I say all that, and I kind of break that down for you, because I think in this section of his letter, James seems to have those last two groups in mind, the deceived and the pretenders, and I think he wants to wake them up to their true condition before God. And so, he begins this section by saying, in essence, look, just because you say that you're a person of faith does not mean that you really are a person of faith. You've got to look at your life and ask, where is the evidence? Where is the evidence of salvation in my life? Where is the proof that your so-called faith is really real? Think about people in the Bible. and There are a number of examples of these kinds of folks. One that comes to mind is a guy who posed as a Christian. His name was Simon the Magician. You can read about him in Acts chapter 8. He was like his day's version of David Copperfield. He seemed to have special powers, and he was able to wow people with with his trickery. But one day, he had the good fortune to hear the gospel preached from the lips of a man named Philip. And Acts 8.13 records Simon's response. It says this, Simon himself believed. He believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. So you think, well, he's a Christian now, right? Not so fast. Later on, Simon saw Peter and John, the apostles, laying hands on the new Samaritan believers and imparting the Holy Spirit to them. And when he saw that, he thought, I want that. I want that power that those guys have. He was filled with envy, and he actually offered money to the apostles if they would just give him this ability that they had. And Peter would have none of it. He was not impressed. He looked right at Simon, and he said, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, Simon, for your heart is not right before God. In other words, Simon, you're not saved. Your faith is not real. You're going to perish. Your faith is phony. Yes, Simon had believed to some degree, 
But his faith fell short of genuine saving faith. He was not a changed man. And it's that kind of person that James is addressing in this section of his letter. And and, and he does it by contrasting two kinds of faith. Dead faith, what he calls dead faith, and living or dynamic faith. And so we're going to look at this. First, he presents three marks or three characteristics of a faith that is dead, that is not effective. And the first is words without works. Dead faith is characterized by words, words without any works. We saw that in verse 14. What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Words without works. And so this is a person who, like Simon, makes a verbal profession, a verbal profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but there doesn't end up being any evidence to support that claim. No supporting evidence. You could call this lip service faith instead of lifestyle faith. And James says that kind of faith won't save this fella. It's empty faith. And I wonder, have you ever known someone who said they were a Christian, but you had your doubts? Have you known somebody like that? I have. I remember one guy in particular who hung around here for a while. He would go out of his way to make sure we thought that he was a Christian guy. He would show up here periodically, make sure he was seen, especially by the leadership here. He would make the occasional strategic appearance here for one of his children's events. And when he talked to me or when he talked to others, he would always use Christian phraseology. Like, you know, God is good, brother. Or I'm praying about this or that. Or praise the Lord. Then we would hear about his life outside of this place. We would hear about this ugly incident or this little escapade or this episode over here. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure this guy's the real deal. I think he's all talk. Maybe you hear that and you think you shouldn't judge people. (laughs) I tried not to. Honestly, I did. But there was such a gap, such a disconnect between this guy's words and his lifestyle that I couldn't help but wonder if he really knew the Lord. James is saying here, there there are those who say they are people of faith, but in reality they aren't. They're not saved. They don't have what the writer of Hebrews called the things that accompany salvation. As a result, they're still lost, lost in their sins. Then James paints this little scenario reveals a second mark of of dead faith. And it's kind of comical, really, if it weren't too often true. Verse 15, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by works, by action, is dead. So here we have a second mark of dead faith. We could say it's acknowledgement without action. Acknowledging needs, but no action. Again, the words are empty, but this time it's, it's hollow words of well-wishing, right? To someone in need. There is acknowledgement of the need, but no corresponding action to meet that need. And notice, this isn't a situation where this friend is lacking 
you know, a late model car or a 60-inch flat screen TV. This speaks of lacking the essentials of life, right? Food, shelter, clothing. But all that's offered is this empty platitude. God bless you, brother. Stay warm, be filled. But no practical assistance to actually meet the need. I call this feigned compassion, hollow. And you can tell James is disgusted by it. The Apostle John expressed a similar sentiment in 1 John 3.17. He wrote, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Do you see it? Do you see that James is building a strong case here that faith and works go together? Do you see that? Faith and works go together, and they do. Active compassion is a mark of true faith. My wife and I were uh, last night just talking about this and talking about how blessed we feel to be part of a church family where there's a lot of active compassion going on. I mean, it's a blessing. A week doesn't go by where I don't hear a story of someone ministering to someone else in a practical way. I know for a fact that thousands of dollars have changed hands in this church. Anonymous gifts to bless other people. We feel, Shirley and I feel truly blessed. We've been the recipient of some of that. You know, we're more comfortable being on the giving end. When you're on the receiving end, it's kind of hard sometimes, isn't it? But it's good. It's good to be humbled in that way. You know what? All of that, all of that active compassion is really just evidence that your faith is real. You know, your faith is showing. Maybe that's how we could say it. And that's a good thing. Now, faith and works are distinct. They are different. Some people want to separate them, though, more than they should be separated. And James anticipates that in verse 18. Look what he says. But someone will say... You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, I've been studying this for several weeks. This is one of the absolute hardest passages in the entire New Testament to interpret correctly, primarily because in the original Greek language that it was written in, there's no punctuation. There's no quotation marks and commas and those sorts of things. So it's not crystal clear where this other person's challenge ends and James' rebuttal begins, but without getting too complex, I believe that what we have here is a challenger, okay? Maybe a real person that James knew, or maybe a, an imaginary sparring partner kind of a person. But this challenger is, is, is saying this, saying, look, James, lighten up a little bit, buddy. You got to realize something. You got to realize there are faith people and there are works people, but both are still Christians. Some people's faith is just so private that it doesn't really show up anywhere. But don't you judge those people, James. They're just not like those outgoing folks who are always out serving other people. Don't make the timid folks feel bad just because there's no outward evidence of their faith. Faith can be a really private thing. That's what this challenger is saying. And you know what? In one sense, this arguer is right. Faith is a very personal thing, right? And it is true that faith alone saves. We're not saved by our good works. Good works don't earn God's favor. But James is contending that if a person's faith 
never shows up in any outward, external, visible way, never produces any loving, merciful actions towards others, then that so-called faith is not the real deal. It's dead faith. That's what he's saying. Real faith works. It has to. There's a cause and effect relationship between the two. It's kind of like the wind or kind of like electricity. Can you see electricity? I mean, can you see electricity? No, you can't. It's invisible, but you can see the effects of electricity, right? Can you see the wind? No, but here in a little bit when the fall really comes around, you'll see the leaves blowing around in your yard or in in the court there, and you'll realize there's wind there. I don't see the wind, but I see the evidence of the wind. That's how it happens with faith and works. The reality of the invisible cause is verified by the visible effects. If you've got real faith, there will be effects of it in your lifestyle. And if there are no effects, then maybe the cause is missing. That's what James is saying. So dead faith is marked by words without works, acknowledging needs without any action. And third, doctrine without deeds. Or you might want to say creeds without deeds. Verse 19. Now, I've got to ask this. How many of you have a little sarcastic streak in you? Any of you that you'd admit it? Now, don't raise your hand real high. Just, you know. See if you detect a little sarcasm in James here. James 2.19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Again, James anticipates somebody pushing back against his argument by saying, look, James, I don't do all that outward stuff that you're talking about, but I do believe in God. Isn't that enough? And James replies with some biting sarcasm. Oh, you believe that there's one God, do you? Good for you. Congratulations, you have demonic faith. That's what he's saying. You know, this phrase here, there is one God, some of you might recognize that as the Shema. That's a statement of belief that the Jewish people would recite often. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a statement that there is one true God, the God of Israel. But you know what? Demons believe that. Satan believes there is one true God. I mean, it's interesting, he talks about demons believing, demons having faith. Demons actually are very orthodox in their doctrine. Did you know that? They are. They believe in God, one true God. They believe in heaven. They believe in hell. Remember when Jesus showed up, demons would speak out, and one time they said, don't send us to the place of torment before our time. They believe in hell. They have an orthodox, orthodox eschatology. They have an orthodox... Orthodox, I can't even say it. Orthodox theology. They have an orthodox Christology. You are the Holy One of God. Demons know who Jesus is, and yet it says here they shudder. Literally, they shake with fear, they tremble. Why? Because they know that their faith, such as it is, will not save them from eternal torment. And it's really as if James is saying here, if all you have is the same faith, if all you have is the same faith that demons have, you should be trembling too because you're going to end up where they are going to end up. 
What's James' point? It takes more than just accepting certain facts about God in your brain to be saved. It takes more than mere intellectual assent to some doctrines, more than just checking the box. I'm always amused whenever another one of those surveys comes out about how many people in the United States are born-again Christians, you know? What is it, 70% or something like that? And I'm thinking, that's just checking a box, right? Do you believe this? Yeah, I believe that. Do you believe this? Yeah, yeah. Do you believe there are 70 million born-again Christians in this country? I sure don't. It's not that believing in correct doctrine is evil. Oh, of course not. It's just not enough. It's not enough. Christianity is not just a mind thing. It's a whole person thing, isn't it? It's a mind, emotions, will, desires, affections, inclinations, passions. It's an all-consuming thing. That's the kind of faith that entrusts the whole life to Jesus and has changed. And James says, in contrast to that, that kind of faith, dead faith is of no good. He says it several times. What good is it? What good is it? It's useless. It's ineffective. It doesn't save. It believes the right things in the mind, but it hasn't dropped down deep into the heart. It's not affecting daily decisions and interactions with others. And so James' contention is that if that's the kind of faith that you have, it's not real and it won't save you. Now, if this sermon's feeling a little heavy so far, you're going to be glad that he shifts now from describing dead faith to now giving some examples of living, dynamic faith. And um, let me read beginning in verse 20. You foolish man. (laughs) I guess if you create your own imaginary sparring partner, you can call him anything you want. You foolish man. Do you want evidence? And he's going to talk about biblical evidence here because he's writing to a Jewish, predominantly Jewish audience. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and then sent them off in a different direction. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So James now turns to two biblical examples of dynamic faith that he knew his readers would be familiar with. Who are they? Abraham, Rahab. Talk about contrast. You'd be hard-pressed to find two more dissimilar people in all of the biblical record. Think about it. Abraham was a Jew, a male a man who was honored and respected. For the most part, he was considered to be a moral man. He was a very wealthy man, and he was the father of the Jewish covenant, father of Israel, Abraham on the one hand, and then Rahab, not a Jew, but a Gentile, a Canaanite Gentile, a woman, not honorable, but dishonorable and degraded. She was a prostitute, immoral, probably not very wealthy, and and really outside the covenant, 
Two very different people on just about any scale you could imagine, but despite their differences, James says they both shared something in common. And what was it? They both possessed genuine faith. And the reason he could say that so confidently was that each of them gave evidence of that by their actions. Their faith was validated or verified by their decisions, their deeds. And as a result, did you know this? Both of them, both Abraham and Rahab, are in the great hall of faith chapter in Hebrews 11. You'd expect Abraham, but Rahab's in there as well. And they're both in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Check out the genealogies for yourself. Again, you would expect Abraham to be in there, but Rahab is as well. What a merciful Savior we have. Merciful Savior. You think about these two, and and I ask, well, what were their deeds? What were their actions that proved the genuineness of their faith? Well, James tells us, he says, for Abraham, it was the act of what? Of totally surrendering and releasing to God that which was most precious to him when he offered Isaac on the altar. For Rahab, he tells us, it was her willingness to protect Two spies, two scouts sent by Joshua into the promised land, into the city of Jericho to scout out the land. And she took them into her home, not for the typical purposes, but brought them in to protect them and hide them from those who would want to arrest them. And she did that at great personal risk to herself. And James says that in both cases, their faith and their actions were working together, complementing each other, so that their faith was brought to completion by their actions. Now, there's a little problem here for us Protestants. You see it in verse 24? This is what would give Martin Luther such heartburn. 1,500 years after James wrote it. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Oh, boy. So much for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So much for the cry of the Reformers, sola fide, only faith. So much for Pastor Steve's grace plan. Maybe the Catholic Church is right after all when they contend that salvation is by faith in Jesus plus our good works. And we need to admit at first reading, this does appear that James here is at odds with the Apostle Paul in how someone gets saved. I mean, you need to realize James, too, has bothered many, many evangelical Protestants down through the centuries. How can this teaching here be reconciled with Paul's teaching? Well, I don't suppose that I'm going to solve it all in, in a few moments here, but, but, but let me make an attempt, and I would say this. I think there is no real contradiction here. I think when you realize their differing purposes in writing, their differing audiences, and their different concerns, that they can be reconciled. So look at the little table there. James, we know, was writing mostly to Jews. Paul wrote mostly to Gentile believers. James, in his writing here, is concerned about empty professions of faith. People who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's no evidence. 
Paul had a different concern. He was concerned that people might have the wrong object of faith, that they might be putting their faith in the wrong thing, like their own works or their own circumcision or the fact that they were trying to keep God's law or the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. James is focusing on the visible effects of faith. Paul focused on the invisible cause of faith, the root, whereas James is focusing on the fruit. James is arguing for the evidence of salvation in people's lives. Paul was arguing for the basis of salvation only in the cross of Jesus. James uses the word justified here a little differently than Paul. He was talking about being justified before men. He was talking about your faith showing up so that people know that you're a Christian. How many times does he say, show me, show me, show me? Paul was defending justification before God, being declared righteous by God. And I would contend that both of them, both James and Paul, believed that salvation was by grace through faith and that that faith is verified by good works. For example, Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2. You might know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. I stand with people who believe there's no real contradiction here. These two had different purposes, a different focus. They would agree that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Both of them believe that. Even Martin Luther, who struggled, as you know, mightily with this passage, wrote this, Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. There will be accompanying actions. So what exactly are these good works that will follow true saving faith? Well, everything we've seen in this letter up till now. This is what James has been talking about all along. Think about what we've studied the last several weeks. Persevering through trials by faith, resisting temptation, refusing to blame God when we sin, hungering to hear and obey the word of God, striving to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, honoring all people equally regardless of their net worth, not judging people based on their appearance, showing mercy to the needy, expressing compassion in active ways. All of those are the good deeds, the good works that follow of necessity saving faith. Doing those good works doesn't save us, but... Doing those good works authenticate our faith as being real. Do you, do you see the difference? So important. They're proof. They're evidence. They verify, validate, certify. Yes, my faith is real. It's showing up in my lifestyle. Real faith works. And then though, when I sat back and thought about these two people, Abraham and Rahab, these two examples that James refers to, I, I saw something else here, something very challenging because when we look underneath their faith-driven actions, what do we see? Don't we see in both of their cases that they were willing to take a risk in order to obey God? Don't we see that in both cases? Isn't it true 
that each of them made a decision to go ahead and obey God, even though it might cost them something. That's what they did. Whether it was Abraham taking his only precious son, the son of God's promise, up Mount Moriah, with the intent, right, of obeying God, God's command to offer him up as a sacrifice. Just think about that haunting conversation on the way up where Isaac's looking around. He's saying, I, we've got the wood and we've got the fire, Dad. Where's the lamb? His dad looks at him and says, God will provide a lamb. And he did, didn't he? In more ways than one, God provided the lamb. Think about the story of Rahab where she was willing to hide those Israelite spies up on her rooftop. Both of them willing to sacrifice something in order to do what God commanded them. They were willing to bear the cost of devastating loss or even in Rahab's case perhaps being executed in order to obey God. I'll tell you what, that is faith on display, isn't it? That is true faith demonstrated. That's faith at work. That's validated, authenticated, saving faith. Let me ask you this. When did Abraham get saved? When did Abraham get saved? Well, Genesis 15:6 tells us it was at the moment when he believed God's promise to give him a multitude of descendants. Remember that? Stars of the sky grains of sand on the seashore, even though he and Sarah were childless at that time. The Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, in that moment, God credited his faith to him as righteousness. But did you know that it was 40 years later, more than 40 years later, that he was taking Isaac up that mountain? James specifically says it was that act of obedience Four decades later that completed Abraham's faith. How so? How so? Because even after all those years, Abraham still believed that God would fulfill his promise through Isaac somehow, even if the boy was dead. If you doubt that, listen to Abraham's parting comment to the two servants as he and Isaac were getting ready to ascend the mountain. He said this in Genesis 22.5, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Plural. We're going up. We're coming back. The statement in the hall of faith about Abraham gives us some insight into this. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You see, Abraham was willing to risk obeying God in this test of faith because even after 40 years, he still believed in God's promise and God's power. And he knew, even if I plunge that dagger into my son's chest and kill him, God can raise him up. Because God promised me it's through Isaac that I'm going to have this multitude of descendants. Man, that's faith, isn't it? That act completed, perfected his faith. 
Again, we need to be clear on this. Look again at how James describes the relationship between Abraham's faith and his works. Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham's obedience did not save him, but it validated, corroborated, and completed his faith. His faith and his actions, listen, his faith and his actions worked together to deliver one unified message. And you know what that message was? God is more precious to me than anything. True? God is my supreme treasure above everything else. His faith and his actions work together to deliver that message. I wonder what message your life delivers. I wonder what message my life delivers. James is also clear that Rahab's risky decision to protect those spies was a product of her faith. Just like with Abraham, her unselfish action in cooperating with God's plan for his people, confirmed that her faith was real as well. I'm pretty sure that James' mention of Rahab, you know, right alongside Abraham, was meant to convey something else to his readers as well. Namely this, that if a harlot, a woman who ran a brothel, can have genuine faith and be saved, anybody can. Anybody can. That's good news, right? We learned last week, God plays no favorites. Anyone, no matter who they are, how they've lived, or what they've done, if they hear the good news and believe it, they can be saved. No matter who you are. Man, this is good news. It's the gospel. I thank God that he included Rahab in his discussion of faith. You know what? James ends this section with a kind of a startling, maybe weird analogy, verse 26. But it kind of sums everything up, I think, that he's been trying to say. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. When you go to a viewing, or you go to a funeral, and at the end, you know, you get to file up to the front and pay your last respects. If, if the casket is open there, you don't expect to see any motion, right, in that casket. You don't expect to see eyelids fluttering or fingers twitching. You don't expect to hear the sound of breathing. You don't expect to feel warmth in their skin because all of those things are signs of life. And this person's supposed to be deceased. I mean, if you do walk by and you see those signs of life, you've got a whole other situation on your hands, right? <laughs> You've got a living person on your hands, not a corpse. I think James' point is obvious here. Just as a living body will have accompanying signs of life. All of you sitting here today have the signs that accompany life. Praise God. Just as that is true, so it is true that living faith will have the accompanying signs of life. If it doesn't, you can conclude that there's no life there. It's dead. Life always shows. Would you say that with me? Life always shows. It always shows. And listen, the only faith that will save anybody is living faith. Dynamic living faith. And dynamic faith, listen, is demonstrated faith 
demonstrated not in sinless perfection. Think about Rahab. In the midst of her act of faith, she lied, right? Was that righteous? No. Was that sinful? Yes. Should she have trusted God with the outcome and told the truth? Yes. We're not talking about sinless perfection here. Dynamic faith is demonstrated faith, but, but not in 100% never faltering obedience. Think of Abraham down in Egypt lying about his wife. But it will show up in the general trajectory of your life being towards loving God with action and loving people with action. That will be the trajectory, the direction of your life and mine. So no, we don't trust in our works to merit favor with God. Whose work do we trust for that? Jesus Christ's work, right? That's the good news of the gospel, that He did the work. We trust that God the Son left His home in heaven to come down here and be one of us and take on a robe of human flesh. We trust that Jesus really did live that beautiful, holy life that we should have lived but didn't. We trust that when he was hanging there on that old rugged cross, suffering and bleeding, that he was paying not for any sins of his own because he had none, but he was paying for our sins, all of our sins, wearing our sin, taking our just punishment that we deserved. And we trust that the Father raised Jesus from the grave to show that he really was satisfied with that payment, that the atonement was sufficient, sufficient to cover all of our sins for all time. And we trust that when we heard that good news and turned from our selfish pride and embraced his sacrifice in faith with our whole being, that in that moment God saved us. He forgave us. He redeemed us. He justified us. He gave us his own son's righteous standing before him. He changed our very nature. He gave us the Holy Spirit of the living God to dwell within us. And now, having experienced this salvation by grace through faith, we can't help but live it out. We cannot help but live it out. It's got to show. For you see, though we were not saved by good works, we were definitely saved for good works. They are the evidence, the proof, the validation, the certification of our faith. As Paul wrote, Paul, in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Well, thank you, James. You know, I cannot preach this passage in good conscience without looking at the people whom I love and asking you this question, which kind of faith do you have? Which kind of faith do you have? Dead faith? Doesn't show up? Or dynamic living faith? Where there's evidence, plenty of evidence, plenty of validation that your faith is real. It's the old children's song says so well, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? This was the sixth message in our ongoing series, James. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Thank you for listening.